Hey, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy, and I love buying my comics at Meltdown Comics, and I know you do too, so I'm going to give you a little gift, and that gift is a discount. So if you use my password, which is going to be Pod Sequentialism Rocks, to any of the employees that work here at checkout, they will give you a discount on your comics. How much is that discount? 11%. Can't beat that with a bag of hammers. Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. And uh, the episode that you're going to hear is uh, a very special episode, and it's been um, several versions in the making, actually. Um, we had attempted to uh, record this last week, um, and we laid down some really important stuff, and um, it was lost to um, just an equipment malfunction. And only two times has this happened, and both times it's when we were discussing things that we thought we might get in trouble for discussing. So it's it's kind of a, a bit of irony. But um, I want to welcome back, um, w- welcome back for the very first time, um, a guest who will be using a pseudonym. Um, the nature of his research has necessitated that he can't use his real name, but please understand that he is a real person. He is a very credentialed scientist. Um, he is a... Um, a molecular biologist and has been published in uh, peer-reviewed journals uh, and he is at the very forefront of several areas of study and I thought it would be fantastic to have him in to discuss the the possibility and even probability of enhanced abilities um, through science, um, specifically the types of things that we're seeing in movies and in comic books and that we're addressing as superpowers. And so I want to welcome back, without further ado, Dr. DNA. Hey, guys. Hello, world. Yes. (laughs) Well, like I said, welcome back for the very first time. And um, when last we were recording, um, one of the things that we started to discuss, and we, we, we covered a lot of ground, and I hope that we can get back into at least some of it, and I know that the nature of things is that we'll, we'll go off into different areas that will also be very fascinating. But um, you had talked to us last time about the homeobox gene and um, how that was an area of research like CRISPR that seems to be leading toward the ability for us to enhance um, abilities in humans. And so I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that, give a little bit of background, um, tell us what the homeobox gene is, and um, we can leave that forward. Well, the general topic of this interview, I think, is how to create super beings, right? Yes. Superheroes, supervillains, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to talk briefly about the homeobox genes, which are a set of genes that just lay out the developmental plan. So like, you know, where do you put a head, where do you put an arm or a leg? And they're highly conserved, meaning they're very much the same across all sorts of creatures. Mm -hmm. So you can mix and match things, you can mix mix and match parts. So if you wanted to put wings on someone and make like the angel character, it could be done. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, but you'd have to also engineer all the other support structure for proper flying. Right. Um, so it'd be one thing course, to have a, just a pair of wings, and it's an entirely different thing to have a pair of wings that can actually make you fly because of the way that the muscle and, and tissue connects. Right, exactly. And also, you know, birds have a very different bones than we do. Mm-hmm. We have uh, heavier bones. They have hollow, lighter burns, bones because they're going to be up in the air. Mm-hmm. So you got to take that into account. But... Um, the general idea of these genes is that, you know, a lot of creatures share these genes and so you can mix and match things fairly conveniently, which is a nice to know if you want to design a new creatures, which right. um, scientists actually do all the time and have been doing for several decades. Um, um, I just saw recently that there was a push forward in research to create human chimeras uh, against um, a huge amount of backlash from um certain people in science and a lot of people outside of science. And, and that's been kind of making the headlines in the sort of pop science category. Yeah, there's certainly the boundary of, you know, you don't want to be cloning people, this moral, ethical, whatever boundary, mm-hmm. but um, it's going to be done. I mean, I know um, <clears throat> the Chinese government has been working on that and it should be done fairly quickly, whether it will be published or known will be uh, in question, but it can be done. Right. So. 
And so you you yeah. mentioned before in talking about the homeobox gene, you know, growing eyes on the joints of flies, and that um, they weren't just um, you know vestigial type of growth; that they were functioning eyeballs that were popping up um, in different areas in insects. And that one of the other things that were, were being looked into was in isolating specific traits to increase durability, speed, and uh, strength. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> the, you know, for designing superheroes, you know, uh, this planet already has a great number of creatures that have superpowers and have been optimized for different situations. Some right. Creatures live under extreme heat or extreme cold you know, under great pressures of water or up in the air. So we have, we don't have to create anything um, from basic principles ab initio. We can just copy things that are already in existence. You know, the eyes of an eagle, for example, mm-hmm. or an owl or ears and things like that. Um, but, you know, all of these things are limited by basic thermodynamic processes, you know, how much energy you can pump into a system or take out, um, you know, how many neurons can you fit between two years, how smart can you make a person, how much of your neuronal structure goes towards supporting movement versus thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our brains, our, our own brains right now, consume massive amounts of our energy. The brain is a very energetic organ. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so you could make creatures that have very small brains, but could have very big muscles, and all the energy goes to that. Uh, yeah. And since there seems to be a a fixed number, um, in a way, of what a body can can take and, and how much energy it can divert to different functions, the increase in one area is going to cause a deficiency in another area. Correct, and and, and in fact, you you can see this. <clears throat> played out in bodybuilding circles, actually. Right. You know, there are people that have the structure or the genetics to put on a lot of muscle, uh, and other people don't. Some people have very thin bones for some reason. Maybe they're on the way to becoming birdmen, and they can <laughs> actually support a lot of muscle. Um, but there's like but a Bulgarian weightlifting the, team from the Olympics from a few years back. Yeah. To, to put on a lot of muscle and to have certain shapes requires not just the ability to put on muscle, but you also require the support structure of your internal organs. So mm-hmm. you need the liver to mm-hmm. process things, to clean out waste, and you need your kidneys. So mm-hmm. you, if you imagined if you had a person who was really good on putting on muscle, but they had a weak link, perhaps they had a weak liver, and they wouldn't be able to do that. Or they had a weak heart, they wouldn't be able to pump the blood or weak lungs. So what you see in um, in very successful athletes is not only do they have the will to practice and become good at what they do, but they're often endowed with great physical traits. You know, Lance Armstrong, that's actually an example of that. He had large lungs and a large heart so he could pump the blood and become an excellent cyclist. Um, but some people just aren't built for certain things. But, you know, we all share the same thermodynamics, the same obeyance to physical laws and mm-hmm. so because you're not good at one thing doesn't mean you can't be great at something else um, an example could be let's say if you were born blind so all the section of your brain that would be used for your eyesight can now be co-opted to be used by other parts of your brain for perhaps better memory or better hearing or something else something that we've seen in daredevil where the um where his enhanced abilities uh, take advantage of the fact that um, he has no eyesight. Right. Exactly. So, it's that. Um, uh, and, you know, another thing is, like, uh, thickened skin. Let's say if you want to be resistant to damage. And there's actually a difference between men and women here. Um, women actually have a different sort of skin structure than men do. Men have a sort of a cross-ply when it comes to the fibers under their skin. Um, women have a single fairly directional fly, and unfortunately it makes their skin a little thinner, um, more sensitive to touch, right? So there's a better power they have, but it also is more um, delicate, can be more easily damaged. Mm-hmm. That's just an inherent thing. But you actually will see that change when you have people that are taking hormones for gender change, mm-hmm. gender reassignment. 
is, you know, a man who takes hormones to become a woman, you know, their skin will get thinner and more sensitive. In fact, a woman has about twice as sensitive on the nerve endings versus a man in the skin. Interesting. So the um, the canary in the coal mine when it comes to human flesh would be um, a woman would feel um, changes in temperature and atmospheric pressure quicker than a man would. Right. It's just because um, the skin is half as thick between the nerves and the outside environment. Interesting. And um, so it would stand to reason that there are going to be certain ethnicities that have, because of centuries of specific breeding and diet, different abilities and... We had talked before about Native Americans and um, the lack of complicated um, digestion ability for foreign foods. And that um, you'd mentioned something very interesting about that, and I was hoping you could open that up again. All right. Well, you know, um, European man, Western man, you know, has had agriculture for several thousand years you know, wheat fields and ready carbohydrates. And so <clears throat> have largely adapted to having a fairly high carbohydrate intake, you know, through wheat products. Mm-hmm. And so our bodies in general have evolved and adapted to survive under a high wheat intake. Um, the Native Americans in America, you know, when the Europeans settled in North America, you know, were not really exposed. They had different foods. They had more uh, wild, natural foods, not as much agriculture, more squash, beans, things. I don't know about beans, but anyway. And so um, they were just used to a different diet for tens of thousands of years. And um, unfortunately, what you see is when Native Americans start eating uh, highly processed meat foods, carbohydrate foods, um, they're more susceptible to what they call metabolic syndrome and diabetes problems with sugars. And we found out recently that the reason that occurs to Native Americans specifically is because their kidneys, for example, are highly efficient. Their kidneys are very efficient at keeping all the sugars in the body. So for every calorie they eat, it's conserved and it goes to fat. Whereas for uh, Western European genetics, um, a lot of those carbohydrates, those excessive carbohydrates that would be in your blood, are actually urinated out. So, because a white man or European man's kidneys aren't as efficient at surviving in famine times, they can survive processed foods better and not get as much uh, metabolic syndrome, metabolic insulin type diseases. Hmm. Um, so, you know, in times of famine, you know, a Native American is going to be much more adapted and much more likely to survive. But certainly we don't live, in, at least in America, in times of famine, you know, in times of too much processed food, sure. Right, right. And certainly right. there's there's going to be other indicators in different parts of the globe. The, um, the diet that African tribesmen have is, and the, the weather and temperature, you know, the, the, um, the nurture, not the nature of it, have led to specific body styles and a certain degree of athleticism in certain areas. And... Um, an ability to maybe move quicker and a body type that supports the ability to move quicker and those types of things. Can you talk a little bit well, about the nature versus nurture thing? Well, you know, speaking about moving quicker, you know, I mean, you've probably heard tales of like how uh, chimpanzees are tremendously strong for their size, right? Mm-hmm. Monkeys. And it really comes down to mechanical leverage. So, their muscles tend to, um, their joints have more leverage than uh, a homo sapien, a human's joints. And it's largely because the, in fact, it is because the muscles insert or are attached on the bones further away from the joint. Mm-hmm. So they actually have much more leverage. So they can lift a lot more weight further away. Um, but it doesn't mean they're super fast, though, because with higher leverage, your speed is decreased. So, uh, eh, depending upon the load. But, like, if you're designing someone who you want to be really, really strong as a superhero, then you would have the muscles attached further away from the joint. And, in fact, I believe uh, the Russians did experiments like that where they would take athletes and they would um, reattach 
where the muscles went. Um, for example, the arm. They would move it up further along the forearm for their biceps to try to get stronger athletes. Is Those that... experiments didn't turn out too well, though. Okay. There were problems with neuronal reassignments. I was gonna. I was gonna say if uh, if there was any data on that, it'd be interesting. But now, do you think that um, when you look at who excels in certain sports, say in the Olympics, where it's a worldwide competition, you you start to see a really similar body type um, win in certain categories, and then every once in a while there'll be an anomaly. So that when you think of gymnastics, you think of incredibly thin um, and not necessarily too tall. And yet when you think of a marathon runner um, or actually a, a speed runner, a, a specified distance speed runner, you think of um, very tall and very lean. Um, and then, of course, you know, when you look at in the weightlifting categories, you're talking about um, people who are generally very, very thick and very muscular. So um, do these things build out of necessity through evolution and when we start looking at these factors, do we do we have to isolate not just genes, but um, the outside interference? Do we have to consider, you know, centuries of um, weather conditions and um, temperature and that type of thing? Well, if the question is, you know, environment versus genetics, um, they all play a very, very important role. And to elucidate the answers to that, you know, the best studies are done when they looked at identical twins who were born and then separated at birth. And actually this has happened in the thousands over the decades. So you have two identical people born with the same genetics and they're actually separated at birth. They live with different families in different parts of the country. And the large databases on this are largely in Europe. And, um, you know, to say it's all genetics is completely untrue, and to say it's all environment is completely untrue. It's sort of like um, if you're baking a cake, right, and the genetics are the ingredients, and the baking of the cake is how long you have it in the oven. You know, they're all important. You can mix all the ingredients together, and you're still not going to make a cake. And you can put, like, some random stuff in the oven, and it's still not going to make a cake. You right. Need to have um, so to say it's all one way or the other is wrong. Right. And so the another but, thing that... Um, but as far as sports go, mm -hmm. you know, the... In some fields of sports, it's fairly well known what sort of physique you need to be good at it. And it's kind of obvious sometimes. So, for example, like weightlifting. If you're going to lift a lot of weight, you need strong bones, you need bigger joints to support that. Mm -hmm. And that's well known. But in other sports, which require more speed or reaction, um, it's actually not well known. It's very hard to predict. And that's why you can have anomalies. You can have a person who comes into a sport who doesn't look like the typical winner in that sport and can win. Right. You think of like Mary Lou Retton in the, in the Olympics in the 80s, not looking at mm -hmm. all like her European counterparts. Yeah, and unfortunately, some sports actually aren't really sports. I'm not saying that gymnastics isn't. But, um, you know, so often some sports are um, judged upon subjective qualities. Um, yeah. You know, the good versus... thing about things like track and field or lifting weights, you know, mm -hmm. it's very measurable. You know, did you pass the finish line before someone else? You know, there's no sort of subjectivity about it. Right. Did you lift a, a certain amount of weight. You know, there's no subjectivity about that. But it's when but you can lift that weight with flair that it becomes an issue that um, that these other criteria come in. Yeah. <clears throat> Interesting. I guess that would be especially um, the point with things like figure skating and, and gymnastics as yeah, opposed to the know, more straight-up contest-oriented um, um, competition sports. You can sports. see how it's a mixture of both things there, you know, how many axles can you do versus mm -hmm. your interpretation of the music. Right. But when talking yeah. about, um, you know, and getting back a little bit to the, to the homeobox gene and isolating, what are some of the things that you think are definitely able to be advantaged and how does a thing like CRISPR um, come into the equation? Mm -hmm. Well, CRISPR is a method to um, manipulate the DNA, and in fact, the RNA. The DNA is more useful 
all of organisms. And um, it's not the first of its kind, but it's certainly the most popular right now. Mm -hmm. And it's very functional, and they're doing a lot of good things with it, improving the efficiency and targeting of it. Uh, yeah. Who knows? Maybe you'll be doing CRISPR at home. Home CRISPR kits, forty nine ninety five. Yeah. Or seven monthly payments. Well, the um, what are some of the the qualities and um, abilities that you think are most easily targeted? Well, in our society, it's probably vanity. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's not exactly a superpower. I, mean, that's I think a that's huge industry, right? <laughs> oh God! Hey, aren't you broadcasting from LA? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, youth, vanity. But do you think that speed and strength and and other things are what other things lend themselves more to being easily manipulated via um, genetics and that type of scientific experimentation? I mean, if you're really going to create superheroes, you know, a runner who's a little bit faster isn't all that. Mm. But if you can make someone who has amazing powers, like the eyesight of a hawk or the hearing of a owl or echolocation of that, I mean, that would be more impressive. Um, and what's the feasibility there? Hmm? What's the feasibility of that? <sighs> well, let's talk about uh, how would we make an Aquaman, right? How would we make a person who can breathe underwater? That would be impressive. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you say? Sure. That would be more than just you know, a faster runner. Right. But you'd have to, uh, you'd have to figure out how to put, you know, gills basically in a human, uh, -huh. replace the lungs with things like gills. Um, well, Patrick Duffy from Anthony Atlantis, I figure he would know this, right? But <laughs> no, I go way back. Uh, I kid, but you know, we know the genes for making gills. You know, I don't know who's going to be the first to do that. I don't know. Mm -hmm. The other thing, though, is, you know, some creatures are actually more efficient at things than others. Birds are an example of that. You know, their lungs breathe differently than our lungs breathe. They're about twice as efficient as we are. Birds? But how could you put bird lungs? Yeah. Mm -hmm. How could you put bird lungs into a human? You know, if you could double the efficiency of breathing... The human, that's tremendous. Mm -hmm. You know, imagine you had a cyclist who could go almost twice as fast. That'd be pretty good. Right. And these, yeah. how on a scale of 1 to 10, where would you place the difficulty of being able to accomplish that? How much money do you have? Uh, you know, can it be done? Yeah, theoretically, yeah. We know how to do this. Um, <laughs> who knows what the press blowback will be? And who wants to be Mr. Birdlum? Right, uh, right. I guess I'm simply would, but the thing is, to create someone who, an Aquaman, for example, they would have to be an Aquaman from birth. It'd be very, very difficult. Right, you have to create this, it's not, you can't alter somebody from a certain way into this because the changes are genetically basic, that it has to grow from... Well, you know, an embryo. Some of the growth, growth morphological changes, the shape changes, would be very difficult without you know surgery, and, and that would just be a mess. Right. So it's certainly easier to create an embryo and and grow a person up from there, and then raise them as Aqua Boy, you know, and then Aqua Teen and Aquaman. And so that example. that speaks to the necessity for secrecy. That because right. when when you address. Where yeah, the blowback, you know, the blowback from publicity about this type of experimentation, um, that it's going to benefit from, from a high degree of secrecy. And um, I think we're going to take our first commercial break right there on that note. And um, when we come back, we're going to dig into um, the necessity of research and how the, um, the global face of science is changing, um, especially um, who's leading these changes um, in, in America and internationally when we return after just a moment from our sponsor. 
Hello, and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy, and we are speaking today with Dr. DNA. Uh, he is using a pseudonym because the nature of his research and his identity um, need to be protected. We're talking about some um, proprietary things, and um, we're talking about an area of research that uh, most people probably think is science fiction, but um, is in fact um, happening. And um, before the break, we talked about um, how we could use certain um, scientific pointers to develop superhumans and um, the necessity of the things involved to make that happen. But, um, and we touched on this, but I think this is going to be the, the, um, the basis of what we're going to discuss for the rest of the program. It really does boil down to money and research. And um, when we have, um, you know, theoretical factors that we know in theory we can do things and we can accomplish things. The only thing that stops them is the ability of money that you get to throw at things, the amount of research um, you can dedicate to it, and then things like public opinion. But um, before you even get down that line, you've already succeeded or at least begun to succeed at what your goal is. So um, when last we tried to tape this and um, and we had a, a full show in the can, and, and we talked about um, how important research was, but also the changing face of science, that when you look in universities, um, especially if you go back 15, 20 years ago, that there became a, a very um, noticeable split in that at least half of every class in major sciences was populated by um, by Asians and, and East Asians, and um, and with a, a little bit of Middle Eastern um, students who were attending these classes, and then after graduating from major universities, taking that technology back to the countries that they came from, and in the past fifteen or twenty years, that has impacted the um, the nature of research and published scientific papers in the rest of the world. And so, Doctor, I would I would like you to talk a little bit about what you've noticed about this over the years and how you've been able to benefit in your research by having the time to actually research? Well, yeah, I mean, for the last 20 years in academia, you would find probably about three quarters of the students in the hard sciences and the engineering classes um, to be non-American here right. in America. Um, and then, you know, a large percentage of them go back to their country and, you know, the knowledge of America is disseminated across the world and, you know, good for those other countries. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it used to be that all the science papers and medical papers were published in English across the world. That was the lingua franca, the standard language. Mm-hmm. But in the last few years, I've noticed papers, for example, coming out of China that are published in Chinese. So, um, certainly is changing that way. Um, the second thing is the quality of the papers coming out of these other countries has increased tremendously. You know, um, Germany was always top of the class, and so was Japan for a long time, and America was as well. But now we find that China has science publishing that is on par with uh, the best in the world. So, And Japan's always been very good, too. Mm-hmm. But China is certainly the big sea change there. And clearly in in China, there's a lot of budget being put toward scientific research. And um, when you look at um, how money is divvied up in the United States, that um, there's a lot more things that require, we'll say, financial attention than are getting financial attention in a country like China and even more so perhaps in a country like Germany, that the nature of their society allows for a, a lot of time, effort, respect, and um, financial backing to go into the hard sciences. Right. You know, I mean, it depends where the money... I mean, what you get out of your population is dependent on how you invest in them. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, if you give a good educational system or if you feed them well and give them hope, potential... They can do tremendous things. A prime example of that would be, um, you know, with small countries where they put a lot of effort into some sort of industry. You know, Bulgaria, a fairly small country, in the 80s put a lot of effort and money into creating uh, champion weightlifters and became to dominate the world. Such a small country, and they dominated across 
the world against other countries that had, you know, manyfold, manyfold more population. Mm-hmm. Russia is another example where, you know, their concerted efforts to create Olympians in the 70s and the 60s, um, you know, aided, of course, by drugs, but certainly by training. They put everyone through very rigorous and smart treatments, and they came to dominate. And if you do that with sciences as well, that'll happen. So what is your country doing with its wealth and its policies? Um, is it swamped with uh, legal turmoil, or is it actually being productive in some fashion? Right, the nature of, if you have a, I don't want to say totalitarian society, because I think it, it would, number one, that would not be true of Germany, um, at least modern Germany, and um, is not specifically correct about China, but when you have a a different, we'll say a non-capitalist system, then the progress that a country makes in science or math or any kind of technology becomes a, a countrywide pride thing. And so it doesn't mm-hmm. fall into the hands of a hand, you know, a small group of industrialists who are then allowed to copyright or trademark that research. That um, mm-hmm. that these types of strides, when made in the name of nationalism, um, tend to benefit the entire populace and not just line the pockets of um, industrialists. People. Yeah, and so clearly in the United States, um, one reason to not. Um, work in the private sector is the knowledge that any kind of progress that you make is going to become proprietized by a company, a, a trademark, a copyright, some kind of, um, of legal ownership of the research will become privatized. And so that right. thing that you want to change that you may be doing for the good of all mankind um, will not reach most people in the world, certainly but not even a large group of people who can't afford it. And um, right. you know, we've, we've definitely talked about that privately, about knowing things that other people don't know and, and realizing that if everybody knows what you know, not even what you know, but that you know it, that you can wind up with kind of a target on your back, um, whether that target is that they keep trying to recruit you or that they then try to, um, you know, publicly humiliate, embarrass, shame, cajole, um, or threaten. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. since the court system will back the most expensive lawyer, generally speaking, um, that can become a, a real a real big reason why people who otherwise might be excelling in the sciences here in the United States choose other careers or um, you just don't hear about their research. Well, certainly, yeah. Um you know, I mean, people will act, you know, logically based upon what they know. I mean, actually, I found that people are not dumb. They just probably have bad information to start with. You know, an example of that would be the lottery. You know, people go for the lottery all the time mm-hmm. because they think they have a chance because all they see on TV are the winners. They don't see the millions of people who spend a dollar here and there and then lost. Mm-hmm. But people are actually, their brains are really quite smart. And are very good at calculation, calculating probabilities, but we're just given bad information. And as far as motivation goes to reveal things or produce things or just share things, you know, it comes down to people being smart and figuring things out and do they trust the system that is around them to be fair to them. And when you have trust issues, society, you know, the fabric of interaction and trade and uh, producing something and selling something and just interaction with other people decreases. Um, So the fundamental principle of trust is vital to the health of any nation. Um, America used to have a very high level of trust. And there was a study I read about five years ago, and it would talk about trust in America and its deterioration. And by some measure, it was like 95% trust. People could trust each other, that contracts would be um, honored. When deals were struck, they were honored. And the legal system would back that up. And they found that since the 70s until now, trust in America has decreased from like 95% down to about 70%. Now, to put this in, perspective, um, 
they also talked about Africa. And they were curious as to why Africa never really built up any large industries, that there always seems to be war going on and dictators. Mm-hmm. And what they found is that in Africa, uh, I'm sure there are, are some small examples, but for the most part, uh, there was no trust. In fact, so much so that brothers did not trust brothers, and families did not trust each other at all. It was down to like 30%. So when you have a society where you can't trust an interaction where everything is done uh, reluctantly, maybe at gunpoint. You, know, you can't build up larger structures of specialization and in industries and trade that deteriorates the entire fabric. So, so truly, even above and beyond a, an economy, one of the binding agents of society itself is trust. Because without yeah. trust, the society collapses under its own weight. Yeah, I mean, what do you do if you can't make a deal with anyone, right? You have something you want to sell, and you think the other person's going to rip you off, so you don't. Yeah, it's interesting that there and there's That's so true. many. You know, when you think of things that we're we're taught as kids, and you and you look at a lot of the stories from you know, um, you know, the Arabian Nights, and a lot of the tales are about trickery. And you go back and you look at, you know, other kind of more tribal societies. You look at Norwegian folklore and, um, you know, that pantheon of gods. And um, there's a lot of trickery. And, you know, when you think of the Vikings and the people who were were, um, practicing, um, you know, Odinism, that Mm -hmm. um, they really didn't form as much of a society as perhaps they might have when you look at the degree of conquest that they achieved and maybe it's because there wasn't necessarily a large faith in a quote-unquote law. Mm-hmm. Uh, although a lot of the principles of Norwegian law made it into English law and then became a, a, a big cornerstone of Western law. But, um, right, like the Magna Carta, yeah. Yeah, so that, that's a very interesting point, and I don't think that that's really addressed enough. And it's interesting that it comes out of a scientific discussion rather than necessarily a sociological one. But that... Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the other, um, and I think in Africa, it's based on possible, you know, that the necessities are such that um, it's not an abundant society. And I think you need abundance to even be able to really provide the building blocks of a society. And certainly we have that in the United States. Um, While we can complain about a lot of things, we do have an abundance. It's just about the distribution of wealth. But, you know, um, to speak to the issues of like sciences, at least which I'm specialized in, um, you know, when I went through schools um, in academia, there was none of this patenting of biotech stuff, patenting of anything. So when you were at a university, you were there and you shared your ideas with your colleagues freely because no one would make money off of it, right? We right. all collaborate together. There was a tremendous amount of trust. And that was like in the 80s and 90s, so 90s started to And then what happened is there were a few industries that uh, patented things, patented genes like for human growth hormone. And universities started to realize, you know, they could make money by licensing these patents out. And then what you see now are labs really not collaborating and not sharing so much because each lab, you know, has money in their eye. You know, they want to patent something and make a company and make billions. So there was a big change um, from the 80s, and the big change occurred in the 90s. So academia is not quite what it used to be. It's no longer just pure research to figure things out. It is basically an incubator to make companies, which is sad. And then you've also got such a small window to actually do research that you're you're working towards a degree, which means you're studying other people's work, and it's kind of a remember and report back type of thing. And so after you get through your 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 bachelor's and you get through your master, you start going towards your master's. You've got that limited window where you've got your area of study to work on your master's and then your doctorate where you get to go away, do your own research, do a bit of reading, and then come back, and then it's time to pop right back into society. Mm-hmm. And so um, can you talk a little bit about how perhaps that has been an even bigger impediment to to progress? Well, you know, there's not a lot of deep learning as a, um, as a 
professor, when you're running a lab, you know, you're largely required to get grants, to write up grants, to get money, to do your research in a very specialized field. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, all these other students and technicians that are working in your laboratory are relying upon you as well. You have mouths to feed, not just your own children. Mm-hmm. And uh, so as a professor, someone who, a newly minted professor, someone who is at the top of his knowledge, you know, he is no longer a scientist or an engineer anymore. He now becomes mostly a manager of people. So it's like a complete degree change. Yeah, and all that knowledge is lost. Well, most of it's lost. Mm-hmm. And you hopefully pass it on, and then you get grad students, and grad students will push the boundary of knowledge a little bit, but they only spend a couple of years pushing the, the boundaries of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now, being a professor isn't completely just grant work and running a lab. You know, you have a little bit of time to read some papers and figure some things out, but not a lot. And, yeah. And so it's it's only if you are, in a way, blessed with the ability to not have to work in in the private sector or maybe possibly even at all that you can dedicate the amount of time and research that you need to really accomplish things. And then if you do and you don't publish and if you do and you don't somehow find yourself in a position to be able to have ownership over your own research, there's the possibility that a corporation can come in and and we're not saying that they necessarily steal your research, but they may be on a parallel track and then they publish their findings and they get a patent on something that you've already known about. Right. So here we come back to the issue of trust, right? Yeah. At least in America, you know, the perception is for now that, um, you know, unless you're really rich, you don't have any hope of intellectual property protection, right? Because you can't hire the lawyers to protect yourself. Right. And that's interesting, uh, you know, just as we've lost faith in the markets and that could be the thread that unravels, you know, the sweater of America, that if we allow a deeper separation between, you know, everybody and then the ultra rich, that right. that trust issue alone becomes the thing that is poisonous. That's that's the thing that unravels everything else. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I hope this podcast doesn't turn off too depressing for all you listeners up there. We've got to not make superheroes to like, there's no trust, there's no hope to give up. Uh, well, I mean, there, there's with something that's, that's kind of worth addressing at wait, the wait. end of this. Life is a uh, sucking, swirling cesspool of despair lit by brief flashes of false hope. Yeah. <laughs> Accredited to... Uh, Who's well, the source of that quote? You know, I think that probably explains why, you know, this is probably going to date this podcast, but it's probably going to explain why the, um, the popularity of Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump at this point, you know, voting for anyone but the system. Right, right. And, um, you know, as feasible or unfeasible those as those two things are. But uh, I think before we um, before we wrap up, and, and definitely in an, in an effort to get on a little bit more of a positive spin, but before we do that, um, what we touched upon, but I didn't think we said too much about, you know, we talked about the fact that the, you know, that English used to be the publication language of um, published scientific papers and that you're seeing papers out of Germany being published only in German and a lot of papers. Yeah, actually not. Now, Germany is still all in English. Okay. Um, in the early 1900s, it was in German, but now it's all in English. The only one that's really not publishing in English is China. It's China, you know, okay. Japan still publishes in Japan publishes in English. Mm-hmm. China is really the only one out. But one so, other thing that we kind of didn't didn't address is that, um, you know, there are places where you can go and you can research um, most of the published work that's out there. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff that just didn't make it into the digital record. And so when you start to need to access those things when you get down a certain road of research and you you see a reference in a paper and then you you check that reference and it doesn't exist in the digital record you have to find a way to track down the actually published version of that of that document and and that can cost thousands of dollars tens of thousands of dollars now you know what's funny about that is it kind of reminds me of the dark net right everyone's familiar with the internet Mm-hmm. And people have heard things about this dark net. But 
you know, this whole, and, and which is 90% of the internet, right? Right. Only a small percentage is stuff you know about. Right. And, and the only thing that darknet is, it's not made of dark matter or anything like that, is it's just websites out there that refuse to be indexed. So you don't know they exist unless you actually know their address specifically. And it's, it's, you know, in publications, it's the same, you know, not and we're not even talking about encrypted. We're just written. talking about hard to find. Right. Not everything that's in research has been published in uh, electronically referenced journals. Right. You know, there, I mean, you and I could publish something. We could put together a paper, you know, we could staple it together and we can sell it, you know, out of the shop. Right. That may not be in a database, but it may be an important paper. In fact, I think it would be an important paper. <laughs> because it's our names on it. Yes, yes. Yeah, but in, it, it does require, I mean, we, we talked about the limited amount of time that people have to do research. A hiccup like that can extend research time by months, if not years. And if you're on a deadline to produce results, you have to kind of forego that or you have to find a workaround. And that either means that you now don't have, as we said at the top of the program, access to the best information or it, and it may cause yeah. you to well, form assumptions. That is a bone to pick, I tell you. So, you know, in America, you know, the taxpayers, mm -hmm. you know, they pay for everything. All the money goes in the government, and the government decides where it goes. Right. And, and the ta taxpayers are paying for all of the research that's being done in America. Right. right? They're paying for these universities. All these papers that are published. And yet... The world out there, all you listeners, unless you're an academic institution, you are not allowed access to the electronic database of all these papers. You've paid for these papers. You've paid for the research. But you actually don't have access. If you want access, you have to pay thousands of dollars a year and uh, for just one journal. Um, so that's kind of insane. Yeah, that's one of my little bones to pick. That is, that's a pretty major bone of contention. The... Um... And something that I, I, again, you just don't hear people articulate and why I think it was such a great, you know, idea for me to bring you on the show is that, you know, these are the types of things that people don't think about. If if you're science minded and you want to to perform research and you don't want to get caught up in a corporate mess, then there's information out there. And if you're going to use something to make your own life better, there's no reason why you should have to pay um, thousands of dollars to access um, the product that um, a company owns. You've already paid for. Yeah, right? that you've already paid for, essentially. And yet right. The, right. someone has allowed this company to issue a copyright protection insurance on. So that, you know, go out there. If, if you're doing research, whether it's, you know, that you want to um, build a better mousetrap or um, cure a disease of the day, the information is out there and you should be able to access it better and you should be able to access it better to make your own life better and, and the lives of the people that you care about better. And you shouldn't have right. to pay the way that water companies try to charge people in Central America for putting buckets on their roof to collect rainwater because they <laughs> privatized the water system. In a way, this has happened in science in the United States that there has been this tariff put on knowledge that we've all paid for and that private corporations benefit from again and again and again and the same bottled water that we buy whether it's Arrowhead or whoever I'm not singling them out but any bottled water company they paid some yeah. local state a fortune for accessing the same water that those people are supposed to get for free in order to stick it in a plastic bottle which destroys the environment to sell it to them for yeah. more than gasoline costs yeah. and, and these yeah. types of absurdities are the big gate of progress across the board. And I think that it is time that people get a little bit more upset about that than about what bathroom someone gets to walk into or um, you know, what, what someone does with their own body and their own will. And the fact that we are not being allowed access to research that we're all paying for is a huge detriment to society in general because, as you said, it used to be that people could, could speak freely and openly with new ideas and, and you would get access to a point of view that you didn't have yourself, which as a collective mind and a collective body people could put to better use moving forward 
And if someone has this idea that their idea is more valuable than your idea, then neither one of you are going to be enriched by how you are going to take that information if the if there's this belief and a belief backed up by everything you see around you that there's a way to profit from it. And if it's personal mm-hmm. profit versus the um, the benefit of humanity, then, then it all goes down the tubes. And I think we're seeing that right now. And it is very possible that these types of things can get overturned. If enough people were to make a big enough stink about right. not having access to information that, that they've already paid for, then the government would have to turn it over and it would have to be fine. And then they'd have to reassess um, the capabilities for companies to issue copyright on things that benefit society, regardless of the money put in. I mean, there's no one saying that, you know, if, if, if I'm Pfizer and I want to produce a pill, I'm not saying that you can't charge people for that pill. I'm saying that the research that you put into it came from the public fund and mm-hmm. therefore that research belongs to the public. Mm-hmm. And so, so I, maybe that is the positive. There, all you listeners, get up, stand up. <laughs> Open your doors and your windows and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take anymore. But um, right. I, but there is a sort of network aspect to this. You know, there is a Howard Beale um, anger to this. And I think that it is important that people understand this, that if you do want to see superpowers in your lifetime and you and you want to be able to have access to this information, then it's out there and you own it, they're just keeping it from you. And it's only one law away from you having access to all of it. And then it just becomes a factor of, you know, as they move forward and they scan old research papers, they're also going back and they're scanning older research papers. And certain papers are definitely pulled from um, easy access by companies that don't want that information out. Which I'm sure you've encountered uh, in your. Been publishing science, and you know, as we know of, from ancient Greek times. So, <laughs> thousands of years of research out there. Not all of it's online. And not all the new stuff is the best. And not all the new stuff is the best. And not all not all the stuff that's being done in the U.S. is the best anymore. And it's important to know that, and that that there are a lot. And of we're in the matrix, and we're we are in the matrix. <laughs> <laughs> Take the blue pill. Well, um, I want to thank you, Dr. DNA, for coming on the program and talking about this stuff. Um, and as I said before, you know, we were worried in having to tape this again that um, that we wouldn't cover the um, area with as, as fresh a take. And I think that we have, and I think that we did definitely discuss some things that we didn't address. And you've given me at least three revelations that I think make this this particular podcast require well, listening for everybody. Revelation, I feel very biblical. Thank you. <laughs> I love it when you say biblical. Well, again, thanks everybody for listening to Pod Sequentialism. I have been your host, Matt Kennedy. Um, you can you can download this podcast on iTunes, or um, you can you can listen to it on um, Blog Talk Radio, and you know go back to the Pop Sequentialism um, blog every once in a while and see what else we're up to. And um, you know, as as I have more information on things, I will. I will definitely endeavor to publish it so that um there is a way that we can all kind of get together and, and change the rules a little bit to benefit us all so until next time um we'll see you later ciao